This is CNN Tonight. We're tracking two major developments related to the testimony from a 26-year-old former top aide in the Trump White House. It cannot be overstated how impactful Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony to the January 6th committee has been. Proof, the ongoing campaign to discredit her by Donald Trump himself and his allies since she went under oath to describe what she saw and heard on and around January 6th. Now, they've been taking aim at her secondhand account, calling it hearsay, when she testified that on Insurrection Day, an angry Donald Trump demanded his Secret Service detail drive him to the Capitol, lunging at them and the steering wheel. But tonight, Hutchinson has new corroboration from Secret Service sources on part of her testimony. CNN spoke with two Secret Service employees, including a longtime member. Both say they also heard about a confrontation in the presidential SUV after the rally. A story, they say, spread widely around the agency in the weeks and months after January 6th, though neither source heard the part about Trump trying to grab the steering wheel or any physical altercation with a security agent. One source did hear from agents that Trump indeed demanded to be taken to the Capitol, shouting something like, I'm the effing president, and lunging forward in the vehicle, then berating his protective detail when he didn't get his way. The second source said they heard the account directly from the driver of that SUV. The most important detail corroborated Trump wanted to join rioters at the Capitol, even though he allegedly knew some who came from his rally were armed. The other concerning development is the new information about who may have been pressuring Cassidy Hutchinson ahead of her sworn testimony. The January 6th committee showed two messages on Tuesday. Sources have since told CNN both were directed at Hutchinson from people inside Trump's circle who could have been trying to intimidate her. One at the bottom of the screen there said, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants to let you know that he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. So who is that person? According to multiple sources, an intermediary contacted Hutchinson on behalf of her former boss, then White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. Meadows' spokesperson, however, is denying that he or anyone in his camp ever tried to intimidate her or shape her testimony. All right. That's a lot to go through. Let's turn to a former Trump insider for her take, Melissa Farah Griffin. Until December 2020, she was the White House communications director under President Trump. And Alyssa, you were also friends with Cassidy Hutchinson. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. So we've talked about this before. You worked directly with uh, former President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Um, from your experience with him, would it be uncharacteristic of him to try to do something like this? He's being accused of, you know, someone in his camp trying to intimidate a witness in this testimony. That witness, obviously, your friend, Cassidy Hutchinson. Listen, the Mark Meadows of maybe half a decade ago when I first worked for him, this would be unheard of. Um, but the Mark Meadows that I think began to come out when he was in the West Wing and really revealed itself in those final months, it completely tracks with the kind of behavior he was engaging in. I mean, be beyond just obviously the direct things that applied to Cassidy, this potential intimidation, he was bringing in some of the worst of the worst conspiracy theorists to give them an audience with the president. He was downplaying, you know, reports of violence as her testimony stated, knowing that there were 
are going to be people who would be in harm's way at the Capitol. So honestly, it perfectly tracks with his judgment and his lack of concern that we saw in those final months. If indeed, and, and it's been denied, but if indeed someone in uh, Meadows' orbit or Meadows himself or at his behest uh, tried to influence her testimony, would former President Trump know about that in your estimation? So that's kind of that's an important question. Um, I could see it being either way, to be honest. It's very in line with kind of the history of how Trump world operates to really push loyalty and punish those who aren't loyal. I've talked a lot about the, you know, disparaging comments and smears on her character that Cassidy is now facing. I faced them when I spoke out against Trump. That's kind of textbook Trumpism. Um, but I could also see this being Meadows on his own. He knew there was one person who could probably reveal his wrong action more than anyone, and it was Cassidy. And frankly, in recent months, he's been out of the good graces of the former presidents. So I think the last thing he wanted was testimony that was going to put him in an even worse spot and put them both in front of even more legal exposure. So I could see it being either directions, unfortunately. Can I ask you about Cassidy? First of all, have you talked to her since her testimony? And has she gotten any more pressure or has anyone um, from her you know, former boss's world or Mr. Trump's world reached out to her. So I've talked to her. She's doing very well, um, all things considered. She went into this knowing her life was going to change overnight. But of course, the magnitude of that doesn't really hit you until afterward. And she walked into it knowing she was going to be smeared. She was going to be defamed. But I think she's she has a strong support system around her. There are so many people who are so proud of what she did and who are ready to support her. I, she's not told me anything about the any outreach from Trump world. I would be shocked if they would do it. Um, she's got a really strong team of attorneys around her, as well as just supportive people who believe in what she's doing. Can she, by any chance, did she say anything to you about the potential of other people coming forward? Or you, have you heard anyone say to you, you know what, after hearing from her and, and the way that she presented um, evidence in this case, it's time for us to, well, to come forward? Right. So Cassidy herself, I think, is lying low. She really wants to let her testimony stand um, because the initial aftermath, of course, there were these discrepancies. And even as the days have played out, as your reporting showed, there's been more corroboration of everything she said. I stand by what she said. She stands by it. The committee does. And I think it's only a matter of time that there's going to be more that comes out to show she was telling the God's honest truth. Um, but, 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 but to your question, I do think it's very likely more witnesses will come forward. And I don't have special knowledge of it, but anecdotal. Totally. I've had even mid-level and more junior people come to me and say, you know, if I can help, I would like to. I don't know if I know something. It's not necessarily a bombshell like Cassidy, but people who I thought were probably squarely in Trump world that are saying, no, this woman did something brave. She exposed what we feared was happening and they want to be on the right side of history. So it's a testament to how much her testimony is breaking through with people, honestly. We talked about this this week. Um, you know, you had said that perhaps the January 6th committee had had almost opened a trap because they did not go to the Secret Service and tell them what they knew or what they knew she, she might testify to. Now you've got these uh, sources that have come to, to CNN and others from the Secret Service saying that they too had heard part of the story about uh, Donald Trump being very angry and trying to go to where the rioters were, to the Capitol, knowing that some of the people uh, may have been armed. What might this mean for the Secret Service? Because they have denied this, saying they're going to let their agents testify, um, denied what Hutchinson's 
account in front of this uh, committee was. What does this mean for Tony Ornato, uh, the agent she says she heard this from, and the other agents who now are saying they also heard this? So to be clear, I hold the United States Secret Service in the highest regard. Um, and having myself been a spokesperson at one point for the Department of Defense, I understand how these agencies probably respond almost en masse on behalf of the agency, on behalf of U.S. Secret Service. They had to come out and say something. I worry that they're going to look back as they get more information and realizing Tony Renato, who, yes, is a Secret Service agent, but was a political appointee and acting as a political actor when he was in the Trump White House, may have put them in a bad situation. Um, I, and and I, I think some of the, there's been obviously the, the reporting that's come out of people hearing rumors of this at the time. I even since have heard from journalists at the time who were chasing the story, but just didn't get quite enough to corroborate it. So I think it's a tough position for them to be in, but I think the committee has been meticulous to this, this point. They do everything deliberately. Honestly, as a former con- um, congressional staffer, I've never seen a committee work so methodically. So I I don't think they would put up one piece of hearsay in a 90-minute testimony if there wasn't a broader purpose to it. It's speculation on my part, but I do think they realized it was an important story, and this would pressure somebody who's otherwise been largely uncooperative, and members have come out and said Tony Ornato was not forthright. This is going to pressure him to come once again under oath and ask, answer tough questions. All right. Thank you, Alyssa Farah Griffin. Uh, now to our panel, the pressure on witnesses like Cassidy Hutchinson's come with the context of committee member Zoe Lofgren saying this. As you know, in a prior hearing, we talked uh, about the hundreds of millions of dollars that the former president raised. Some of that money is being used uh, to pay for lawyers, for witnesses. And it's not clear that that arrangement is uh, one that is without coercion uh, potential for some of those witnesses. Let's discuss the legal and the political implications with Michelle Cottle from the New York Times, former RNC Communications Director Doug High, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Elliot Williams. Thank you all for being here. Michelle, I'm going to start with you. We'll get to the legal stuff in a minute, but just what you just heard Zoe Lofgren said uh, about money being used to help pay for, you know, the the lawyers for those who um, are being contacted or may testify in front of the January 6th committee. Is it something that looks bad but is legal, or is there something really wrong here with that? I'm not going to address the legal issue, but I think in terms of how bad it looks, it's completely sketchy. I mean... You're investigating the Soprano crime family and you find out that the witnesses coming before you are having their legal bills paid by, you know, people close to the Soprano crime family. I think that's a real problem. So I can't imagine that this is a good situation for them. Elliot, I want to ask you the same question because you'll look at this from the legal perspective (laughs) as well. Funny, you know... um, Look, at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong on its face with paying someone else's legal bills. Think about all the GoFundMes you see when people have a legal defense fund, or literally a legal defense fund. That's okay. Now, when you start putting conditions on the money you're giving giving somebody or conditioning the advice you're giving them, then of course that is a problem. It runs into ethical laws, and it could be witness tampering too. So like on its face, it's fine, but it can carry some other bad stuff depending on what's behind the money. But couldn't somebody 
not have the word said to them. Oh, yeah. which is, and still feel that pressure that if they're being paid for by the, the folks that are in and around Trump's world, that if they say the wrong thing, then they're on their own. Yeah, and even, Sarah, you don't even need to say that much. It doesn't need to be that explicit. It could be, you know, here's $50,000. You're on the team, right? And that, I think, starts getting you into the ethical trouble, with, frankly, with the bar or even with the law. It could be criminal. Okay. Yeah. Doug, um, where is the Republican Party that used to get really upset about any appearance of impropriety? I mean, law and order, um, you know, worried about moral decay. What do you make of this? Is this technically a problem for them? Uh, politically, it may not be a problem. They, they look to have a big political year, certainly in the House of Representatives, potentially in the Senate. Uh, but obviously, the Republican Party has morphed over the past few years. And the party that, by and large, said, we can't elect this guy. Overwhelmingly, uh, every person who was running right. for president in 2016 said, this guy's terrible, until they stopped doing that. And as that happened, the Republican Party changed. And it's one thing I'd take issue with what Alyssa said about Mark Meadows is, this is exactly the Mark Meadows that I met in 2013 and dealt with in 2014. This is the Mark Meadows that everyone who worked in House leadership knew. If you read John Boehner's book, he has very personal stories about Mark Meadows where he won't say it's Mark Meadows, but it's very clearly Mark Meadows. This shouldn't surprise anybody that this is where uh, a lot of this is being pointed to now. Do you think from the Mark Meadows that you know that he would be capable of doing something like Without question. Trying to intimidate a, a witness? Without, without question. Look, he's, he's somebody who, John Boehner in his book talks about a story of an unnamed member of Congress that everyone knows is Mark Meadows that literally got on his knees in the Speaker's office and said, I beg you to forgive me. That's Mark Meadows. Wow. All right. Um, it's a good book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Clearly, I better go pick it up. Um, Doug, I want to talk to you about limits. Um, you said um, that you were proud to take part in the, the Brooks Brothers yeah. riot, right? Um, that, was, that was a while ago, 20-some-odd years yes. ago. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Uh, where Bush supporters entered a government building in Miami uh, to stop the vote count back in 2000. Everybody remembers 2000, the hanging chads, and so on and so forth. Where does the line get drawn? We're looking at some video from back there and in, in, back in the old days in 2000. But yeah. where is the line drawn between that and what happened in January 6th? Do you draw a line? Yeah, very clearly. You know, in, in, in 2000, and some of my Democratic friends will disagree with me on this, but we were on the 19th floor of the Stephen Clark Center in Miami, and we were chanting, we were chanting count every vote. And a colleague of mine uh, pulled a sign that said voter fraud with the, with the 1-800 number, and we chanted call now, call now. There's a very real difference between that and then what we saw, not just on January 6th, but in the run-up to the election. If I lose, therefore, it's going to be stolen. I have lost. It was stolen. And what Donald Trump has done, and others have too, and we've, we've seen this in other elections as well, but the president of the United States has more power. We call it the bully pulpit. It's much more than that. Um, and it's what we broadcast to the world has really weakened what we believe, and everybody now believes in both parties, um, in the efficacy of our elections. And that's a real problem moving forward in America and throughout the world. And, you know, it wasn't just the 2016 election, uh, the 2020 election. He started making those claims as early as 2016. I, that the Iowa caucuses. If, right. right. Uh, you know, the only way I would lose this election is if there's fraud. So there's a through line that went all the way through. Ted, Cruz, the yeah. Ted Cruz stole the Iowa caucus from Donald Trump, yeah. according to Di on Donald right. Trump. So it, Donald no matter Trump. what happens, the, the idea is he set it up that if he loses... It's been stolen. I mean, that was said many, many, many times. And people had asked him, reporters had asked him, well, if you win, 
Was it stolen? I mean, obviously, if you think of it one way, is it the other? I want to ask you about Meadows because of uh, what we just heard. Is there a possibility? I mean, what happens next if you are looking at this case from the DOJ's eyes? Like, what happens next when you start hearing this kind of language? All right, witness tampering. It's corruptly persuading someone with the intent to, I think, prevent, hinder, or influence their testimony. Like I said, Sarah, it just doesn't need to be that much. You don't need to put the severed head of the horse in somebody's bed. You just need to intend to get them to say something else. And this is, you could at least charge this here. It's getting there, and it's uh, it's it's not a, a baseless case on its face. And one of the things Mark Meadows needs to think about is if this gets tracked back to him, Donald Trump's going to cut him loose mm-hmm. in a heartbeat. Yeah. He's not going to keep Trump's him in the to Donald Trump. He is not. He does not care. He will throw him under the bus as quickly as he has thrown everybody under the bus. It was that guy who didn't have anything exactly. to do with it, and he's on his own. All right. Thank you, Michelle Cottle and Doug. And Elliot will be back with us in just a bit. It's been a week since the Supreme Court overturned Roe, and the battle is already raging in the courts on a state-by-state basis. We'll look into what's happening now and what President Biden is doing on his end to try and counter the Supreme Court's decision. That's next. One week since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, at least 10 states have banned or severely restricted abortion, and many more are moving to follow suit. But the map you see here is continuously shifting as states and abortion rights advocates wage their own battles in court. Legal challenges are underway in at least 11 states right now. Temporary injunctions to block strict abortion laws are in place in four states, Utah, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Texas. A Florida judge is also expected to sign a temporary statewide injunction next week. President Biden, in the meantime, has vowed to protect abortion access and the use of abortion pills, but acknowledged the rest is up to Congress. Congress is going to have to act to codify the row into federal law. As I said yesterday, the filibuster should not stand in the way of us being able to do that. But right now, we don't have the votes in the Senate to change the filibuster. This is not over. It's not over. Joining me now is Nancy Northup, the president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights, one of the advocacy groups fighting these state bans. You were also a part of that Supreme Court case that was uh, decided against. Nancy, you recently wrote an op-ed calling on President Biden to declare a public health emergency for abortion immediately. Why did you do that? And what are you expecting that to do if he were to do so? Yes, well, in the week since Roe versus Wade was overturned, we've seen states move quickly, as you said, to ban abortion, to put these trigger laws into effect. And as you said, we filed 11 lawsuits. There have been injunctions in various states. But the consequences are swift and severe, as in state after state after state, people losing the right to make this decision. And so the Biden administration has the power to declare a public health emergency. And what that would allow is for the administration to ensure that The FDA's approved medication abortion, which the agency has said can be used for telemedicine so that you could be in Texas and have a telehealth visit, perhaps with a doctor in New York, 
and then have pills mailed to you at your home, you would never have to leave your house, that that would be an important countermeasure to this public health emergency. Because the, the consequences, the health consequences of denial of access to abortion are well known because of complications from pregnancy and delivery and unsafe abortion. So it's really, really critical. And to be able to get medication abortion to people in states where abortion is banned would be a very, very important counter response. But the, but the president hasn't done that. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, obviously, there could be some legal ramifications, couldn't there be? Well, I think that the administration is still considering all of its options to be able to bring into effect what the president has said, which is that access to FDA-approved drugs, meaning medication abortion, should be as available as possible and states shouldn't be able to block it. So I think the administration is still thinking about what are all the possible ways to do it. And the one that I just talked about with the public health emergency is one of the ways available to the administration. I gotta ask you about this. You know, the Supreme Court has left it up to the states to decide the legalities of abortion. Isn't what is happening exactly what the Supreme Court intended and if so, I mean, what you're doing to fight this, do you think it's kind of a moot point? They have made their point that the states get to decide. Well, the states still need to comply with their own state laws and constitutions. So the lawsuits that we have filed along with colleague organizations have been under state constitutions. And everyone in the United States, of course, has two levels of protection, the federal constitution which unfortunately the Supreme Court just said doesn't protect abortion rights as a personal liberty, but they've also got every state which has a constitution. And some of those state constitutions have already been held to protect abortion rights. And some we're asking for the court to find that in their state constitution. And we also have other claims uh, in some of the cases like Louisiana, where they have not one, not two, but three trigger laws. It's vague, which one is even in place. So there are other legal and good grounds for challenging these laws. And the fact that the Supreme Court said, you know, that Roe versus Wade was overturned doesn't mean the rule of law is over in every single state. This is, though, what conservatives for a very long time have been fighting for. And they they were um, overjoyed to see the court overturn Roe. And you mentioned the states like Kansas that have uh, abortion rights as part of their their constitution, but other states don't have those those laws necessarily. What makes you think that your lawsuits have a chance in in reversing any of this in states that are going forward trying to ban or severely restrict abortion? Well, well, let me start with the fact that, I mean, our immediate concern is to be able to keep clinics open and abortion providers should be able to provide the services to the people in their communities for as long as possible. So, you know, states can't move with expedition without making sure they're complying with their own laws. And it's really important. I mean, in Louisiana, uh, abortion services are back being able to be provided. And that makes a huge difference for the person who's sitting in the waiting room, who's made their appointment, who's made their decision. It's a huge change for their own life. And so it's very important right now that we're able to keep clinics open as long as possible. And in some states where we're challenging under the state constitutions, they may well prevail in the long term of keeping abortion access in those states. 
Nancy Northrup, thank you. It's not the decision, uh, the Roe decision widening America's divide. The new makeup of this Supreme Court is handing down all kinds of rulings, reshaping American life as we know it. We'll dig deeper into that and what else could be coming from the court next. The impact of this term for the Supreme Court will be felt for decades. They may be legal decisions, but those decisions place the court also smack dab in the middle of America's culture wars. As some in this nation cry out about excessive force and the number of young black men killed by police, twice the high court ruled in favor of police officers limiting the circumstances in which excessive force claims can be brought against police. The deadly smuggling incident in San Antonio, Texas this weekend, reminds us all of the horrible price some will pay for a chance to call America home. The court allowed President Biden to end former President Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, but it limited legal options for those who are here and made it harder to hold Border Patrol officers accountable in some cases. Citizens of Puerto Rico were denied equal access to protection in terms of disability benefits, while Native Americans saw the court weaken their tribal rights while also stripping them of double jeopardy protections. Basic tenets of our justice system, like habeas corpus and Miranda, were watered down, while those in power, namely Senator Ted Cruz, were given more freedom from campaign finance rules. In the midst of global crises like a pandemic and global warming, the court stripped power from the very agencies designed to protect us. The federal vaccine mandate was struck down and the EPA lost the ability to regulate power plant emissions. As school board meetings become battlegrounds, the court stepped right into the heart of that fight by weakening the separation of church and state and allowing prayer on school grounds. The court solidified the neighbor versus neighbor nature of our politics by upholding Texas's abortion bounty system. The court wiped out 100 years of established gun regulations and the 49-year precedent for the constitutional right to an abortion. But all of this may be a precursor for what's to come. With me to discuss the court's new reality are Bakari Sellers, Doug High, and Elliot Williams. Gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back from last night. Thank you. All right, Doug, let's start with you. When we look at the next term, there are a lot of things coming down the pipe that a lot of people are concerned about. Voting rights, LGBTQ discrimination, um, these things are all on the docket uh, Mm -hmm. for the court to look at in the next term in October. If you look at SCOTUS and what they did already, how far will they go, do you think? I don't think we know yet. Um, What Republicans have talked about on the issue of of abortion, they've been very clear on. They've been very clear and consistent for years. This is what they've always talked about doing. And it's why judging what the politics of this are, I think, are slightly difficult. Going that step further um, on something like gay marriage uh, may be easy for the court to do, may be hard to do. You know, if you're talking about Clarence Thomas, well, then what do you think about the loving decision? Right. Where right. he has obviously a very personal stake in that. A lot of um, people notice that he didn't mention that one. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think it's really hard to tell. Obviously, you know, Democrats are going to say this is what the Republicans are Republicans on the court are going to do and define it as extreme as often as they can. That's also a great base motivator for them. Uh, but I just don't think we know fully yet. Elliot, what do you think? From what we've seen already, I mean, yeah. the court's been very clear and they have, you know, erased yeah. a lot of precedent here. Yeah, look, the court has the Supreme Court has shifted to the right uh, over the, over the last couple of years. There is no question about that fact. But I think we need to step back, and everyone focuses on the six 
conservative appointees on the Supreme Court when the federal courts across the country have shifted to the right. Just by way of a little quick history lesson, at the end of President Obama's term, there were 105 judicial vacancies, right? Now, President Trump came in and said, Barack Obama left me, left me all these judges. Well, it was because Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans didn't confirm judges, for the most part, for Barack Obama's entire final last two years. That had a huge impact on shifting the courts to where they are today. It's been uh, an animating principle for voters on the right for the last 40 years, uh, ultimately ending and culminating in, in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But shifting the courts to the right has been something that quite successfully, led by Senator McConnell, Republicans have done. And this is what Republicans have wanted. So yeah. there is a, there are a group, a, a large number of Americans who like what they're seeing. Bakari, you know, Democrats for decades have known that Republicans are, are working towards their, this aim, particularly with Roe versus Wade. Have they been doing enough? Did Democrats, they could have codified this into law. Have they well, been doing enough? I mean, enough? so, look, well, codifying it into law, we have to go back and remember, many people think about the 44th president of the United States and Barack Obama, but he only had a, a, that supermajority for 72 days before the passing of Senator Kennedy. So that's just a little footnote. The fact is, though, Democrats have not done enough, whether or not it was Rahm Emanuel, um, who pretty much said, F the courts, we have other things we need to be doing, uh, to use Rahm Emanuel language. Um, we, when you think about the fact that RBG should have retired when uh, Barack Obama was president of the United States, my liberal friends get mad at me for saying actual facts. Or you look at the, one of the things that conservatives did when you talk about Roe v. Wade was organizing to block Harriet Myers from the Supreme Court and replacing her with Alito, whose mission in life has been to overturn Roe v. Wade, or McConnell and his blocking of Merrick Garland. It's very clear to see what this court is doing. I mean, this is a fact. Uh, all you have to do is look at the concurring opinion by uh, Justice Thomas. Of course, he didn't put his own marriage there, but would he vote for it? I don't know. But do they need him to vote? No. Uh, they're coming after privacy rights. They're coming after substantive due process and everything, every line that you can draw from that. Now, I will tell you that I didn't make any A's in law school. You know what they call somebody <laughs> who finishes last in their law school class? Counselor. A lawyer. lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I ain't a legal scholar. Uh, but I will tell you that I can, I can read an opinion and tell you what I can see next. Yeah. And what you can see next is gay marriage. Yeah. What you can see next is many of the laws that come from substantive due process, IVF, birth control control, contraception, um, uh, same-sex marriage, intimacy with a partner of your choosing, and then you get to the things that people don't want to talk about, Brown versus Board of Education, right. et cetera. There's that, a re well, sorry, go, go ahead. No, go I'm ahead, just going to say, um, dissents are written to disagree with the majority opinion, right. but they're also written for history, right. and they're written to, to for future courts that might take those issues up and might uh, pull the court in that direction. So I actually think Clarence Thomas was, was aiming for the fences there, uh, with the hope that you might get a future, more Pushing even more forward. aggressive Supreme Court. Yep. But uh, since Republicans, you know, have they have gotten what they have wanted for many, many, many decades, but they have been working towards that and working towards right. it, and they finally got what they wanted. And you cannot blame them. This is what they wanted, and they are celebrating this. What should Democrats do? Well, first of all, the, the uh, president of the United States has to organize, and I'm not sure what he's doing. Um, I can tell you what he ain't doing, right? And the fact that we knew this was coming for 30 days and this White House was sitting on their hands and did absolutely nothing is one of the more depressing things for a Democrat in this country. Um, the fact that we have Chris, Kirsten Cinema, for example, and I hope she's watching tonight because her cowardice is one of the reasons that we're set back in this country. The fact that she is so hypocritical that she will come out and say that, no, I will not eliminate the filibuster to codify 
uh, the, the rights of women, reproductive rights of women, but will send me an email of fundraising emails talking about how she's a reproductive right champion. I mean, this, this is the type of stuff uh, that makes sure that Democrats stay in minorities. This is what's going to burn us in 2022. It's the talking out of both sides of our neck. It's the lack of fortitude. It's the lack of courage. And Republicans, to their credit, had a 40-year vision, a 50-year vision, Democrats can't get a seven-day vision. Let me ask you a quick question. This is a yes or no. Will these issues bring Democrats to the polls in 2020 and ostensibly 2024? Yes. Republicans? Some Republicans, maybe more Democrats, but... You know, the issues of inflation and rising crime and all that. Yes or no. Oh, my gosh. I mean, there are other issues. You are correct. There are other issues. There are other issues. The economy is always a big one. It always has been a big one. We will talk about that in a bit. Thanks to the three of you. I appreciate it. didn't even get an answer. Elliot, yes or no? Elliot is the legal guy. He doesn't want to get into politics. Obi-Wan Kenobi, I don't do politics. Smart. Smart. All right. Now to our next story. American basketball star Brittany Griner appears in a Russian courtroom after months in custody. The U.S. calls her detention wrongful. Today's developments near Moscow and the fight to bring Brittany home. That's coming up next. American WNBA star Brittany Griner will be back in a Russian courtroom on Thursday after her trial began today near Moscow. She stands accused of bringing less than a gram of cannabis oil into the country. She's been held since February. U.S. diplomatic officials were in court today watching some of the proceedings. Griner faces up to 10 years in prison if convicted there. In a tweet, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken wrote, We, and I personally, have no higher priority than bringing her and other wrongfully detained Americans home. So what is the Biden administration prepared to do to make that happen? Let's discuss with Steve Hall. He's a former CIA chief of Russia operations and a CNN national security analyst. Thank you for being here, Steve. Good to be here. All right. Uh, Let's talk first about Russia. Uh, Their system is different than our system when it comes to the justice system. Uh, In Russia, what is the likelihood that a trial, any trial, not just Griner's trial, results in an acquittal? Well, I think you have to start with the fact that there really is no judicial system in Russia. What you have is a very well-developed theater, uh, a Potemkin village, if you will, of some sort of idea that maybe there is rule of law in Russia. And this is, of course, not the case. Uh, You'll see things that many of us in the West and especially in the United States recognize. You'll see judges, uh, you'll see courtrooms, you'll see lawyers. um, But all of that is is drama. This is there. There is no legal system to speak of that is that is truly functional in any Western sense. So, you know, acquittals, whether whether how many there are, how many there are, it doesn't matter. The Kremlin is the one who decides certainly on these high profile cases uh, like Reiner's case. I do want to mention something because you talked about how these courts work. We heard from uh, a member of the embassy was in there watching this. And obviously they're trying to observe to see if there is any potential uh, fairness or anything that they can do and use. And at one point when a witness came forward against uh, Brittany Griner, they were told to leave. I mean, that would never happen in our 
court system. So it's an example of what you say, that this is more theater than it is an actual judicial process. Um, what at this point do you think Brittany Griner's best options are right now? You know, it's really unfortunate that she doesn't really have any good options at this point. She is now under the wraps of, of the Russian government, of the Russian system. And the only thing that really that she can hope for is, is that what Vladimir Putin wants out of this, which is an exchange of prisoners, because really what's happened uh, to Brittany Brenner, she's been kidnapped uh, and she's being held now in exchange for something that Putin wants. Whether or not it's, it's high-profile Russians that, uh, that are held here in the United States, many people have spoken about Victor Boot, who's, who is a... Um, you know, he, he's just an arms trafficker, a horrible person who's in jail for 25 years here in the United States. It could be that that's what Putin wants in exchange. They want a prisoner swap or some other high-level prisoner. So really, that is her, her only hope, uh, aside from a 10-year prison sentence, which is truly horrific in Russian prisons. Truly. And, and we should be clear, you know, the Biden administration and many administrations are usually reluctant to create that incentive to say, OK, if you get one of ours, we're going to give you one of yours. And, and you know, the person that you just men mentioned, Victor Bout, he's known as a merchant of death. I mean, Brittany Griner is a, a WNBA you know, star player who uh, allegedly is accused of having, you know, a little tiny bit of cannabis oil. I mean, these are very different people. What is the danger um, to 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 this case and just in general to relationships um, if they do carry out a prisoner swap, which they have done before. Yeah, this is the this is the part that is really, you know, it's just really difficult for really any administration in the United States because it's so galling. So they have somebody they have a U.S. citizen. And of course, the U.S. government's first and foremost interest is looking after U.S. citizens abroad. That's the primary responsibility of consular sections in the State Department everywhere. That's why you saw the Chargé d'Affaires attending that court, uh, the, you know, the court appearance that you that you mentioned earlier. But the problem is, is that, yeah, you're going to incentivize more of this, not just by Russia. North Korea is another perfect example. These rogue states, these authoritarian states who know that all they have to do is nab one American, whether it's a business person, a tourist or a professional uh, like Reiner. And, and, and then, they, then they can bargain for whatever it is that they want for us. So that's, that puts the administration in a really difficult position, especially when the families begin to put pressure on public figures and saying, look, you got to do something to get this American, my daughter, my wife, whatever, out of, out of the Russian jail. It's a really difficult position for any administration to be in. Steve Hall, thank you so much. We did hear from Sherelle, her wife, yesterday, who did just that, put pressure on the administration, and she says she will and the family will be putting more pressure on them. They want Brittany home. I appreciate your time, Steve. Sure. All right. In this country, it's Fourth of July weekend. Fun, right? But be ready. Traveling this holiday weekend is promising some serious headaches. We'll look at what's leading the airlines to cancel so many flights as a rush of travelers like we haven't seen in more than two years are expected to crowd into airports. That story coming up next. More Americans are expected to fly this holiday weekend than we have seen since the start of the pandemic. But are the airlines ready for the rush? Delays and cancellations just might be in your future. Natasha Chen is at Los Angeles International Airport tonight. Uh, nationwide, j just give me a sense of how things are looking right now. 
Well, Sarah, nationwide, there have been about 570 flight cancellations today, more than 6,800 delays. Uh, here at LAX, it's been pretty smooth, but we have seen some more serious problems from the New York area airports. For example, LaGuardia and Newark, each uh, more than 40 percent of their departures were delayed today. And why we're seeing these delays and cancellations is because of a number of factors all happening at once. First, you've got some potential severe weather this weekend in pretty much every region except the West Coast. And then you have this surge of demand from travelers. And you might have mentioned that this is really the most number of travelers expected since the pandemic began. TSA last Sunday screened the most number of passengers through U.S. airports since February of 2020. Mm. Now, I've been saying that same phrase through a number (laughs) of holiday weekends throughout the last couple of years at different airports, which just goes to show that demand keeps building, but the the staffing on the airline side has not met up with that. So a lot of staffing shortages, high demand, and weather this weekend. You know, a lot of people get frustrated, uh, anybody would, and myself included, because, you know, the delays are, are a problem, the, the cancellations are madness, but airlines receive $54 billion in federal assistance during COVID's peak to avoid involuntary layoffs. They now have fewer employees than before the pandemic, especially pilots who are fed up because they say they're tired. I mean, what is happening on that front? We heard from the chair of the Allied Pilots Association today, and he gave an example of American Airlines. He said that used some of those funds to uh, incentivize um, early retirement when all the planes were grounded in the beginning of the pandemic. And he felt that there wasn't enough foresight in keeping enough pilots current. And so there's this training backlog now. He said it's going to take some time for the staffing to come back to full speed to meet this demand. So in the meantime, uh, a lot of airlines say to the uh, travelers, please be patient. They're doing everything they can to make things smooth this weekend, Sarah. All right. Natasha Chen, thank you. And thanks for watching. The CNN special report, Trumping Democracy and American Coup, is next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.